Welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. My name is Lyndon, I'm studying artificial intelligence and I'm interested in the design of efficient systems for virtuous outcomes. I'm Josh, I'm studying psychology and I'm interested in the generation of progress that alleviates suffering in the world. We believe in the power of knowledge and the role it plays in creating a better world. We hope you enjoy the show. Oh, all right. <clears throat> we are on. We are back again. Um, back for another week. Um, okay. <laughs> another beautiful start. Um, yeah. So, welcome back to Philosophy AU. I'm here with uh, Lyndon, as usual. He's just run upstairs to grab a quote. <laughs> um, so, welcome, listeners. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, as usual. Um, I think we should probably start by giving another special shout out to our beautiful friend Billy and uh, yeah, we, we did mention her on a previous episode about this, yeah, so um, uh, a, a another girl that, I don't know, we I think we've met her once at a conference before, Ali Silva is her name, is that right? <coughs> yeah, so Ali Silva is her name. Um, and it was relating to just how we gave, um, well, it's, rela- it's related to the automated donating. And um, so basically like Ali saw Billy's posting a story about it and then that sort of motivated her to begin an automated donating um, set up as well to a chosen charity of her choice. Um, so yeah, that was just really, really, really phenomenal to see. Because um, again, by no means where we the the cause of the direct cause of that but um i think just through the power of networks and like um just spreading good ideas uh th- that was really good to see that these conversations are having some sort of um, benef- beneficial impact yeah there's just i think a benefit to um the consistent exposure over time to yeah. ideas and yeah, i think definitely. um yeah, like Ali said it in her upload, I saw something along the lines of like, she didn't actually action it until say three or four weeks after Billy had posted hers and there's yeah. kind of just, it's these cogs being set in motion That's over time. Um, and I certainly didn't set up automated donating the first time I heard about the yeah. idea. So That's the classic marketing. I think the number's seven or something. Um, in sales and marketing, it's like the amount of times you need to see something to you know, potentially act on it. Um, so it is that repeated exposure that does make a difference, which which is a good reminder because I guess, you know, we, well, I, I'll speak for myself. I have the fear of, or like have that self-conscious feeling of not wanting to like overload people with the stuff and like drain people's life with like, oh, he's just posting about that again. Um, but yeah, it is a good reminder that, you know, potentially it is going to need multiple times of exposure and like spreading the message in a in a hopefully like non to evangelical way. Yeah, and apologies to Billy because I was like I replied to the notification that I got from her mentioning us in her story, and mm. I was like I'll reshare this tomorrow. Um, I just have to re-download Instagram again because it's <laughs> like you can't reshare from a computer mm. from the desktop. Um, 
and yeah, got to the next morning, just went straight to work and forgot all about downloading Instagram again. And then what was it all for? Yeah. Because <laughs> <just laughs> like in my head, I was just like, no, it's not being evangelical. It's like, it's important to share, you know, hmm. important ideas and, yeah. and give these things exposure. And then it was going again. And I was like, oh, sorry, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it made me think that like, you know, I guess whatever does or doesn't happen with this podcast and its trajectory, I would be really, really super pleased if, um, you know, like anywhere from like 50 to 100 people were to take up something like automated donating um, off the back of this. Um, that would be a, like a really big success in my eyes. Yeah, that would be a huge success. Yeah. Like you, you, 50 to 100 people wouldn't even have to donate that much to just make such a such a, a substantial difference. Yeah, and m- maybe we should just do a quick little review of it all or just like maybe like a little reminder that, um, you know, it is so easy to do. You literally just set it and forget it um, just like you would a gym membership. Um, and again, like some really like humble numbers can make an effect over time because they accumulate. Um, I think, are we both against malaria? Uh, I shared mine a little bit. Um, I did sort of like, uh, I think, yeah, 10 to $15 a month to malaria, another um, X amount to another. Because I think against malaria gets so much, obviously, traffic, which is good because it's the most efficient per dollar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just couldn't bring myself to give it all there. Diversify that portfolio. That's it. (laughs) Um, yeah. So against malaria. So where was I going with that? Yeah. So you can literally donate any, like 1%, 5%, 10%, any, almost any number of your choosing. Um, but they give you some prompts and some ideas, but they say based on their estimates and calculations and educated guesses, I suppose that, something like $3,000 a year will save a life. Yeah, I think it's even just like slightly lower than that. So, Mm. yeah, it's about like Mm. $2,500, I think, which is just, it's like it sounds like a lot of money to some people, but it's just like then I don't think, if it still sounds like a lot of money, you haven't then considered just how important life is and just Mm. how, um, like this is just preserving say someone's life like someone can't enjoy anything they can't do anything that would bring me like all these things that we care about typically say in the western world is like Mm. oh i want money i want a family i want meaningful romantic relationships i want these things that we think are like the highest ideals Mm. it's like all of those presuppose having a life to begin with yeah and like that's that means the importance obviously of preserving and extending lives is just unbelievably important if we consider those other things to be very important. Yeah. Um, I think the... I think I was literally just listening to Sam Harris talk about it uh, yesterday or this morning, but malaria had been killing upwards of a million to two million people for, I don't know, as long as anything, um, as long as it's been around. And then, and then I think now, I think he was saying it's gotten under a million. So... Uh, it is, yeah, making some good progress. And uh, I think it's 100% of the donations to them go to the bed nets. Um, and, yeah, if people want to look at other good charities, you can go to givewell.org. Uh, 
what other there's another website that I give well um yeah like effective altruism or yeah. something just yeah just type in some of those buzzwords um and you'll probably end up in the right spots but yeah the thing that i always think of, like this is a weekly sort of thought for me probably over sunday morning is if i get up and do the thing that i always regret doing and like going on to instagram and it's like you see boomerang after boomerang of espresso martinis and like expensive drinks expensive plates of food like people have gone to um you know chin chins mr miyagi these (laughs) expensive melbourne-based restaurants and spent what would be you know a third of someone's life like sort of if Mm. we're if we're taking that twenty five hundred dollar figure like there is in many of these places, you know, north of five, six, seven hundred dollars being spent hmm. amongst a group of friends. Yeah. And just like two or three of those nights, like saves literally saves a person's life. Mm. And those <coughs> nights are considered important. It's like, yeah, I hung out with my friends, had a really good yeah. time. And it's like that's so transient hmm. in comparison to literally saving someone's life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like obviously we are not trying to say that not to do I don't know. No, I, yeah, I know of you're not, not saying that, but um just to yeah. Uh, for the uncharitable listening of that, just to push back against it. Yeah, obviously, you know, we enjoy our lives and spend money on the things that we find important. But yeah, again, I think it's just about establishing some sort of balance and recognizing that it does take so little just to do um, such a large thing. And yeah, once you just do it once, you just set it up once, then it's it's almost, you know, taken care of... Um, you don't really have to think about it again. And that, and that is why it's so good because it doesn't rely on like your your motivation to be altruistic. It's it's just there whether you're feeling motivated or not. <clears throat> yeah. You always temper my um, stronger and bolder thoughts, Joshua. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, yeah, the point I was trying to get at is, you know, the additional espresso martini that you buy that costs, mm. say, $15 or $18 or however much it costs... Mm. It's like if you just automated donated that like mm. each week, it's like mm. you'd still have enough to buy the espresso martini you want. It's not, it's not yeah. like it's going to be make or break for you. Mm. But regardless, even if it was make or break and you had to miss out on one espresso martini a week, like by the end of the year, you've, you've donated say a substantial amount of money and made an exponentially big difference to someone else's life in yeah. comparison to the cost that you've had to forego. Yeah. And it's not even just a cost that you experience. You also feel good for doing it. So yeah. it's not like a one-to-one yeah. like detraction. Mm. Um, I think Peter Singer says that he tends to be... Because there's, there's the saying of being... Um, what is it? Is it penny-wise and pound-foolish or pound-foolish and penny-wise? I don't know. Anyway, he, he, he seems to be... Yeah, so the saying is be penny-wise and... Oh, I'm not going to go there because I'm going to screw it up. But he seems to be penny foolish and um, pound wise, which is just to say that, um, you know, with small purchases, because he's probably one of the most um, influential and well-known, I guess, advocates of this style of, you know, life and uh, these ideas. Um, he Very much a pioneer of the ideas. Yeah, very much so. He He's probably one of the one of the most influential philosophers that's ever lived. Um, when you look at what he's done for animal rights, like that's not too big of a statement. Um, it, 
probably definitely the most influential philosopher alive. Um, but anyway, he has dedicated to donating, I think, like 30% of his income for the rest of his life <clears throat> and has been, has been doing so for some time. Anyway, what a lot of people will push back to him is, um, you know, you're not enjoying your life, yada, yada. So he sort of makes the point that he's happy to spend money on small things, but it's just like when he's making those bigger um, purchases or those bigger choices, that's when he really thinks, like instead of buying the $70,000 car, it's like he might buy the $50,000 car, but he's not like skimping on getting a coffee, a third coffee for the day, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. And I think that's, yeah, he's in, it's important to listen to, I think, people like that on these topics because they have to deal with the straw man version mm. of the counter arguments all the time. Yeah. And yeah, I think he makes a, a really good point. Um, but I'll go out on a limb here and you might try and temper my thoughts. But mm-hmm. a lot of those, I think, criticisms are just people... Um, uh, trying to like it's just an expression of confirmation bias to mm. some to some degree I like just so. i don't want to do this and i sort of i want to what's uh what's tyler cowan say like um devalue and dismiss oh the, yeah yeah the opposing side yeah yeah i think that's right um again it comes a lot down to like jonathan Haidt's work as well it's just like and that, and that is why I do have the opinion that, you know, because I want to be as effective as I can with these ideas. I do have the opinion that, again, like my comparative advantage hobby horse, it's that the people that already care about it are really the ones that have some sort of obligation. And I don't use that word lightly. Like I wouldn't say that everyone has an obligation to be giving to charity or <clears throat> not, eating, not eating animals or giving money to homeless people. I would just say the people that have an inclination to already care about those issues have the obligation to because there are those people that don't have the inclination to care about it. So they are probably there's no amount of evidence that's going to turn that person into a vegan. Um, and we all know these people that are conceptually the ideas make sense and they understand the evidence and even believe it, but they just don't for whatever reason. So there, there are those people. There's people all, all along the spectrum. Um, but yeah, that's why I feel that the again, everybody's on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, shout out to the spectrum. Maybe that's what we should call the podcast: the spectrum. <laughs> the spectrum. <laughs> that's actually not bad. That isn't bad actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the side plot knowledge there is: Josh and I have been having discussions about mm. changing the name of the podcast. Not saying it is going to change. Not saying it isn't going to change. Just. And also not saying that anyone even cares. Yeah. <laughs> That's no, but like but I who think, knows? I don't like know. I would be interested if people have if you listen to the podcast and you think like there is something intuitive that it should be called and like there's some way of you conceptualizing the podcast. Yeah. I would be interested to know. Like Yeah. Two boys talking. Like is that mm. the sort of the salient feature for you or is it mm. um yeah, what what are the salient features as I guess? Yeah, give us, give us a third input. Um, but yeah, just to round off that point. So yeah, my overall rule of thumb with this in my own head is that if you have an inclination to care and you're earning at or above the median wage in a westernized country, you have an obligation to give. Um, I think that covers a lot of caveats and I'm not hesitant to make that a strong statement. Do you want to move on to insights yeah. of the week? 
Yeah, so... Um, God, my feet are fluffy from this rug. You talk. I'm going to adjust yeah. that blind that's banging. So, I've been thinking about a lot this week. Um, I was thinking a lot about just ideas in general. This sort of came up because uh, I was listening to Julia Galef, who we were speaking about during the week, who just recently published a book called The Scout Mindset. Um, she also hosts a wildly popular podcast called Rationally Speaking and founded a organization called something something on rationality. Center for Applied Rationality? Yeah, that could be the one. <clears throat> anyway, Julia Galef, a baller in the field, um, highly respected and done a lot of good work. So, yeah, anyway, she was talking about her new book and we did touch on it recently in a podcast just about not identifying with, not identifying with your ideas and uh, also she referenced and a lot of other people have referenced and you may have read Paul Graham's essay called Keep Your Identity Small, I think. Yeah, so good. Such <coughs> That was very... Uh, like Paul Graham is kind of famous for having written a lot of, or just being an, an influential essayist and a lot of mm. the modern intellectuals we look up to, mm. um, you know, say the likes of, uh, like myself, I li- I really enjoy Patrick Collison, mm. um, Tyler Cowen, mm. um, you know, Ilya Ziedkowski, mm. Julie Gaylor, like a number of these people and a lot of those people read Paul Graham in the mm. early 2000s. Mm. However, on of those, you know, although he was sort of very popular essayist, he has then obviously the cream of the crop essays that really yeah. resonated with people. And that's one that's of the ones you are speaking one. about. Yeah, it really gets um, a lot of, still to this day, um, a lot of referencing. So she references it in her book and uh, Coleman Hughes was also referencing it in a conversation with her. But it, the, the crux of the essay um, is kind of like we spoke about the other week, is just really not identifying yourself as a person with a particular idea, like not having that um, one-to-one affinity with it. So you would, it's probably a better idea to be, you know, yourself as a person for whatever that means. And we can have a conversation about ourselves um, a different time, but there's that. But then there's a host of ideas that you sort of, uh, that you carry with you. Um, and the crux that they're getting at is just to, Julia Galef says, um, hold them lightly. Um, Paul Graham says to just keep your identity small in general. Largely just talking about the same thing. Um, just about really not identifying with any particular ideas as a person because then you're able to like have these conversations about them and have disagreements about them. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just thinking about like the, the idea that no idea that you hold is a bad idea by the very nature of, and I think we were speaking about this a while ago, by the very nature of you holding it, you inherently think it's a good idea. Yes, agreed. Which is like a tricky thing because uh, if you're, if you, if someone else isn't living the way that you're living, you almost also inherently think that they are wrong. Yeah. So I would probably make the subtle change in that it's not because you hold it or 
it's not that because you hold it that you think it's good. It's you think it's good because you hold it. Mm, if that makes sense. It's just in the sense that um, it's not sort of that we select all these ideas out of, you know, the ether and only select the good ones. And therefore, you know, we, by um, virtue of selecting it, it must have mm. been good. Mm. It's that we much, much more accurately, I would say, is we are just influenced by the penumbra of variables that we um, can't track. Basically, like mm. the randomness of life, ideas yeah. inevitably end up in our head and yeah. our cognitive machinery is geared around making us think that should be there and other people mm. should believe what we believe. Yeah. It's the bias and I'm forgetting the name where you overvalue things that you own. It's just, it's a confirmation bias. Yeah. And again, um, mm. you might be thinking of my side bias, maybe, um, which is another name typically used for confirmation bias. I don't like to like blanket statement in the sense because or what I would say is a lot of people, I think, misuse confirmation bias. Mm. And they're just like, anytime you're arguing with someone and the alternative party prevents, uh, sorry, presents evidence and they go, oh, that's just confirmation bias. You're just mm. like looking. Well, it's like, well, no, that's how, that's how debates and mm. arguments have to occur. Like two people have to present yeah. evidence. But generally speaking, I think the phenomena that you talk about is confirmation bias. It's like insert random yeah. idea, you are going to believe it's good, mm. you know, if it's held in your head. Yeah, that's that also brings up. Um, I don't know if you call it this guy who's just wrote that book about like mind parasites and mind immunity. He's been on, anyway, he's doing the pod rounds as well recently. Um, but just this idea that that like the the ideas are agents in themselves, and I think also that's what like Nietzsche said. It's like people don't hold ideas ideas hold people um and there's you know it's kind of like a, it's an interesting like romantic view to have around or maybe like an interesting dystopian story around ideas being the agents and then people being like the the hosts um of these parasitic ideas um yeah which is interesting to think about that you just sort of hold them and then they sort of make their way into manipulating you into thinking it's a good idea and then spreading it. Um, but yeah, I think it also just speaks to just reassessing, just reassessing the ideas that you do hold. Um, because that, that was largely why it came up for me. It was, it was a fear. It was like a, a, uh, an imposter syndrome moment where I was like, fuck, there's probably some things that I'm really, really wrong about at the moment. And what are those things? And by virtue of, um, uh, again, by virtue of me holding the ideas and me being the first person in that experience, I can't, I'm not in the place to identify what those really wrong ideas are. Um, yeah, because I, so one, one quick example that I'll just give is um, Rob Wiblam was talking about his, uh, his perspective on teaching language in schools. Like, he's pretty strongly opposed to teaching language in primary schools. He's just like, his view at least is that, um, you know, you look at the amount of people that end up speaking these languages or getting anything valuable 
from what you can tell out of it and taking on those languages as adults um you know it's vanishingly small he's he thinks that you know there, there could be so many other great things that you could do with that time and resources um and that you know you don't actually learn that much of the language you you can maybe learn to count to 10 and a couple of basic pleasantries and listening to that i was like yeah that's quite compelling um you know, I'm pretty swayed by that argument. I'll take it on. And I was having a conversation with a friend um, and she literally um, just almost changed my mind in like an instant, pretty easily. She was just like, just because there isn't that much ROI, like return on investment of people speaking the language, like it doesn't make it a waste of time. Like just sort of speaking to the experience of it all as well. Like just like education shouldn't just be about that end point it's again about like diversifying and giving you wide exposure as a child instead of like over specializing um so yeah that was one where i was just like i thought i had this um idea well i didn't have the idea but i was compelled by an idea and i thought it had um pretty compelling reasons for believing it and then in one conversation i just kind of flipped on it i was like oh you know what that was such a blind spot for me why didn't i consider that and yeah it just concerns me to think about how many more of those are currently going on um inevitably almost yeah um did you want to quickly just like say who rob is just as a yeah um so rob he's an australian which is always cool um for some reason shout Um, out to philosophy au yeah yeah which i don't even know if we've uh, mentioned that but the au is for australia i I think our audience is intelligent (laughs) enough to it's like, wow, these guys can't spell philosophy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, anyway, the AU is for Australia. And, um, I think All it, philosophy gold. What's the AU in gold? Is gold. that the gold thing? Yeah, gold's um, the... the uh, what am I... The... What's the, the elemental symbol of gold is AU. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so anyway, that, was, that just sort of... Um, pays homage to Australian intellectuals because we feel like they don't get enough attention and yada, yada, yada. So Rob Wiblin is an Australian. Um, he, I don't know if he runs or works at the 80,000 Hours Institute, which is at Cambridge or Oxford, either one of those um, in the UK. And he runs the 80,000 Hours podcast. Super influential um, on my thinking and the effective altruism movement. Um, he's extremely, extremely uh, intellectual and smart and um, got a very well-rounded view of things, I would say, as well. Yeah, yeah. big props to Rob. He's done a lot. Um, to your point, though, about ideas, this is something I, I would certainly agree with that. Um, like, so often we give lip service to the idea that, you know, of course I'm wrong on a ton of things and, mm. um, you know, you can see how wrong you believe others to be at various times. But there, there is something existentially shocking when that really sinks in for a moment yeah. and you go back to it at various points in times and it sinks into that deeper level again and you're just like, oh, wow, like I could be like so or I am just so blind to where I'm wrong. And Mm. it's just, you almost feel like just you're completely exposed and you don't know where the the attack's going to come from. Yeah, it's especially prescient or um, 
a relevant feeling given what we're doing with this podcast. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just a continual feeling that comes up. Um, but yeah, I do hope that we uh, are quite open enough or that we are um, upfront enough about like not being too like normative or prescriptive um and also like you're much better at that than i am (laughs) um but also just not um you know i think it's quite clear that you know we're working through things as we're speaking a lot of the time Um, we definitely do try and instill a couple of bits of solidified knowledge that we are quite confident on um but yeah i there is definitely a lot of room for things potentially not being as accurate as we would like. And, and that's just the nature of it, right? Like the landscape's going to change. So the map's going to be not completely accurate. So yeah, it just reminds me of a conversation um, that I had one time with a friend, Miguel, um, just going back to your point about ideas and not knowing where you're wrong. And I said to Miguel, we're just like speaking about death and dying. And he was sort of like, <laughs> oh, how do you feel about it? Yeah. And I was like, well, <laughs> I think like the most frustrating thing for me about dying is that there's no, there's no kind of like test revision at the end of it. Like where you Mm. get to sit down with like, you know, God or the teacher or whoever. And is just like, Mm. here's all the things you believed in your life. And I'm going to tell you now, like where the capital T truth is on. Like, I was just like, that's so frustrating to me that like, I will have to die without knowing. Yeah. Like one, everything. Cause that would be cool. (laughs) Like I would just, love to have lived you know for long enough to explore every topic that interests me Mm. and two just to be like i feel like lisa in the simpsons when she's just like grade me (laughs) just (laughs) just at the end it's just like just tell me i was wrong in this issue tell me rationality was like (laughs) dumb as fuck and yeah 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 just like but just show me what i missed yeah that would be ideal your your conception of heaven is probably wildly different to others. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> um, but yeah, what have you been swishing around your mind this past week? Um, so I had a number of things uh, going on this week. This week, actually, like from maths perspective, um, at uni, I thought it might just be like interesting to kind of mention a little tidbit. Um, so the module I was working on this week was counting, um, which seems like such a basic. <laughs> basic thing it's just like what like why are you doing high level you know counting education or what like i can hear dave right now yeah (laughs) (laughs) and it sounds it sounds so ridiculous but like the kind of counting that i guess you do in a um you know discrete mathematics course at uni is um say how many numbers are there between you know one thousand and 999,000 that mm. start with a two and end with a five. Or, so the, the point is, is like, and I think counting is kind of a misnomer, is mm. you are using principles to calculate how many numbers there are for something, but mm. you're not like explicitly counting it. You're oh, okay. not going, starting from, you know, 1,000 and yeah. counting up and going blah, blah, blah. Or another example would be... Um, given the first eight letters of the alphabet, how many um, five-letter words can you make? And Mm. just saying, like, any combination of letters is a word. It's Mm. just, like, how many different um, permutations of that can you make? Mm. So that's the kind of counting um, 
that you do. And one of the principles in counting is, um, so there's, there's two major, I guess, things that one would think about when presented with a counting problem. There's a, there's a number of factors, but one is, um, do the, is it ordered? Like, does order matter? Say, for mm. example, like, you know, um, you've got a digit problem, you know, digits between 1,000 and 10,000. How many digits are there that, or how many numbers that have digits only in ascending order? So that kind of thing. So does order matter or can it just be any random combination? Um, or And the other would be, can um, think, can elements be repeated? You know, mm. can for the first eight letters of the alphabet, can you do A, 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 A? Or is it, it must be A, B, C, D, E mm. for a string of five letters? Um, so yeah, just there two of the big sort of things you might think about and one of the principles you have in counting is if you have it's called the pigeon pigeon pigeonhole principle <laughs> and it's basically like if you have um a number of pigeons that are greater than the number of pigeonholes then mm. one pigeonhole must have at least two pigeons mm. okay and it sounds super super simple mm-hmm. and i just like how these kind of ma- these maths um or like mathematics in general is about taking like what what you cannot argue with, like which is sort of like yeah. which appears logically obvious, and then taking steps that you cannot argue with and getting to counter counterintuitive points. Oh yeah. Um mm. and this isn't gonna be that counterintuitive, but I just thought it was interesting. So um using the pigeon pigeonhole principle, you can work out, say, roughly how many people share a birthday. Um, in Melbourne. Mm, interesting. So pretty simple. It's just like there's say four and a half million people in Melbourne. Mm. There's 365 days of the year. Mm. So it's like you have 4.5 million pigeons, mm. 365 pigeonholes. Mm. And then you just like divide and round down. Mm, and interesting. ultimately you get um, roughly 12 and a half thousand people in Melbourne sharing a birthday. Very cool. For like every day of the year. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because I think thinking about probability is really important or Mm. how bad our intuitions about probability tend to be. And that can have quite severe implications, I think, in Mm. some circumstances. Like typically life is geared around being pretty safe for us um Mm. given our level of ability to think about probability like we yeah culturally and societally we put in guardrails yeah like dummy proofed it yeah exactly um so i want to use that kind of as like as a tidbit because you know so often you'll like enter a new workplace or you'll meet friends of friends and then the conversation say comes up and it's just like, Oh, you know, that person, what are the odds? Or, yeah. you know, Oh my God, we share the same birthday. Like what mm. are the odds of that? Mm. And it's like, well, if there's 12 and a half thousand people in Melbourne who probably mm. share a birthday mm. and it's like, you haven't picked a single day mm. and gone, yeah. you know, we share that same day. It's just, mm. you've got a run- bunch of random people talking about birthdays. Yeah. Odds are one of them is probably going to share one. Yeah. That's the, there is that common statistic. It's like, of a pu- 
at a party of maybe like 100 people, you'll have the same birthday as a non, a surprisingly large number. I think you're in something like you need 26 people in a room or something before it's like someone, it's more likely that you share a birthday than not share a birthday. Yeah. Yeah. That is crazy. Um, I'll look that up after this episode and um, we will talk about the exact answer next week, but it's something surprisingly Mm. small because you think it would have to be like 350 odd Mm. before you start sharing a birthday, but it's like, that's not how distribution works. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. And that's, uh, it is so surprising because it just speaks to how just naturally bad we, or how bad our intuitions are with probability. Um, for some for some reason, which I'm not exactly sure why that's the case. So that was the um, the first little tidbit that I wanted to talk about my um, my sharing time. And the second is I just wanted to read a quote <laughs> from um, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, who was she's a sort of like sci-fi um, writer. Um, passed away in 2018, unfortunately, um, but she's very famous in the sort of the feminist sphere. Um, Mm. So I read her book, The Left Hand of Darkness, um, which uh, I thought super interesting. Um, It's basically about, um, yeah, it's just kind of like this faraway planet where there there is no gender, basically. There's sort of Mm. um, androgynous, like there's sort of Mm. like... Um, mostly ish male, but then mm. they go into something called uh, Kema, which is mm. basically like the um, fertile period, and sort of like mm. one takes on more masculine features, one takes on more feminine features, and that's cool. Yeah, I just thought it's like it's really interesting to see these ideas explored yeah. um, in a fictional universe. But the fact yeah. that she wrote it in sort of like the sixties, which really was, wow, um, that that really times with the third what what wave of was one of the feminist waves was maybe second wave second 60s wave? i think third wave is more like 80s and stuff and then, okay and then no one's really on the same page about what is going on now <laughs> yeah that's, whether it's fourth that's wave true. or post-feminism or whatever but yeah to um don't actually quote me on when she wrote the book it could have been later in that but she wrote it around a time when it was definitely uh much more courageous for a female yeah. to be putting ideas like that out there into the world. Yeah. So um, I got a lot of respect for her and I think, think she's really cool. But um, I really like this quote and I want you to sort of like just keep that other, um, you know, birthday probability sort of like tidbit in mind. Is just, um, so the quote goes, if you cannot or will not imagine the results of your actions there's no way you can act morally or responsibly. Interesting. And I just think and that seems so obvious, but what I'm getting at is we have a horrible grasp over probability. Mm. And then to me, at least it logically follows that we do have quite a horrible grasp over the implications of our actions. Mm. And that is one of the major hurdles in acting morally or responsibly. Yeah. So it takes like quite a bit of, I guess like counterfactual thinking to, um, to be able to act morally. Yeah. Um, 
I think yes, um, definitely. And maybe I'm just like drawing more links there than seem um, maybe like immediately apparent. But to me, those two, those two ideas I shared, I guess, like are very related. And I think mm. they were just like interesting tidbits just to throw out there that like mm. basically acting morally and responsibly is being able to like simulate forward, you know, your actions and the implications of them yeah. and being able to forward think about the consequences. And yeah, like and that requires a pretty substantial amount of counterfactual probabilistic and statistical thinking. Yeah. So is a central piece going against your intuitions? Um, or just like not going against your intuitions, but just like possibly if you want to act morally, you, you need to just, yeah, think about implications to begin with. It's not just, mm. yeah, maybe I guess this is what you're getting at with like going against your intuitions. But I think a lot of people just sort of think like, oh, this is the right thing to do. And like, that's mm. the extent of it. There's right. not, why is it the right thing to do? Like, yeah, how right. does this transmit forward in time? Mm. How does, it's not that like someone sitting there and pondering, like my into my moral intuition says this, but it could be that. Yeah, it's th- there's not even sort of hmm. thinking going on at the intuitive stage, almost. Yeah, right. So, yeah, you you would maybe say that um, that many of us are. Well, there's a term like lost in thought, but perhaps this could be adapted to like just lost in action. Yeah, very much. So that's I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, hmm. thank you for that. <laughs> hey no thank you that was a very cool link to draw and um yeah i think it would be remiss of us not to do an episode on maybe like probability and um uh, decision making hoping to do that with tamor when he comes on <laughs> yeah true. we'll save that for you tamor um for the 18th mention in a row on the episodes <laughs> so quick shout out to adam grant tyler cowan <laughs> um the not overthinking podcast yeah. jeff bezos jeez yeah, those are the regulars. Meta. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, today we are going to talk a bit about, um, a little bit about violence and maybe like confrontation and abuse because um, it sort of flows on. We touched on a little bit in the last episode, but I think we probably just wanted to give it some more, um, some more airtime, uh, the, the domestic abuse stuff as well. Um, we did a, a psychometric test again. Um, so not one that can be considered, um, diagnostic at all. It was yeah. like literally us just, were Josh Googling, um, yeah, tests on the dark triad and just thought we, we'd do that again and discuss the results. Um, mm. but did you want to potentially discuss quickly yeah what the dark triad is mr psychology major (laughs) psychology major hardly yeah so the dark triad um it is so we we had a personality episode right and so we spoke about personality traits and then the groupings of these personality traits and then i guess the validity of those groupings so it's probably just important to add that context or implicit knowledge that this is just one way to group some characteristics and then put a bow around it and then trying to make some, trying to do some pattern recognition on those groupings and try and draw out some extrapolations from that. Um, so again, like these things aren't necessarily like, again, to use the word ontologically there, 
Um, but these are just uh, convenient or useful ways to come about some insights. Yeah. Um, and I think the dark triad is interesting because, well, I guess in the personality, in the vast majority of personality tests you do, it tends to focus on, or the tests tend to focus on more positive traits. Mm. It's like, yes, that you can yeah. be on the negative end of some spectrum for yeah. that trait, but generally speaking, like it's not looking at the malevolent aspects of quote mm. unquote human nature. Yeah. And, and, and a potential reason for that is, which is just a ghastly fault in my eyes is because there's a conflation between describing something and accepting it or advocating it, advocating for it. Um, you know, like trying to understand why sexual abuse occurs. People conflate that with excusing it is the term I was looking for. So there is, which is again, like a horrible fault in my eyes because like I've spoken about many times, there is a world out there for right or for wrong, good and bad things happen. We, we need to be able to have discussion, have, we need to be able to observe it and have discussions about those observations um, in order to do whatever we want to do about it, to change it or to improve it in some instances. Um, so I think that is largely why uh, that comes up is because people conflate um, trying to understand something like abuse or anger um, or rape with excusing it. Um, that's sort of something that we may touch on a little bit later. So the, the, the dark triad is um, so three personality characteristics I guess you could say, so they are Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism. So those three, I guess, put together in a bin would constitute what um, psychologists have come to call the dark triad. Um, and again, like as you touched on, it's, yeah, these are largely um, negative, negative traits to have individually. And then once you put them together, um, they're obviously combined to make something bad. So, yeah, so maybe just, do you want to just explain each of them or pick yeah, them so, go back and forth? Um, I'll start with Machiavellianism because that's probably the the least intuitive to people. Mm. Um, there is some... Cultural uh, reference? Yeah, there is some cultural reference and, and knowledge required there. So, um, Niccolo Machiavelli was, uh, I guess you'd call him an Italian philosopher, um, or he's become very... Whoa... I'm going, to start, I'm going to start way at an unrelated point. <laughs> a lot of modern philosophers want to be philosophers. A lot mm. of previous and historical philosophers weren't actually like aiming for philosophy. Mm. They, they just like, they've just been, they're now observed for their thoughts and we yeah. sort of refer to them as philosophers, but yeah. they were just people say like advocating at the time for something they believed in or they weren't aiming for a career in philosophy, yeah. so to speak. Um, and Niccolo Machiavelli wrote this very, um, what's become very famous book called The Prince. Um, and he basically instructed royalty on how to um, present themselves to their, uh, to the masses, to their kingdom, to their, whatever the correct term is there, you know, mm. how to portray themselves to the empire. Mm. 
Um, and it was very much, um, yeah, just this sort of political um, guidebook and, and recipe for being the, yeah, again, in the, the portrayal sense of like how to portray yourself as the leader that um, you should be. And there's been um, there's been discussions over time, like the quote unquote Straussian reading of that mm. is Machiavelli was actually trying to make a point that this is how a leader shouldn't behave, whereas others mm. sort of have made the point that no, he was being prescriptive, and mm. this is you know you should mislead and conceal and use um, sleight of hand as mm. a as a ruler. Um, so yeah, I guess to to round that out, that's the sort of the cultural background on Machiavelli. And Machiavellianism is now referred to as the personality trait of being manipulative. Because mm. that's ultimately what he was getting at is you know here's how to use your your kingdom to get the ends that you want. Mm. Um so yeah, I guess that's where you fall on a on a spectrum of Machiavellianism um, conveys your supposed degree of manu- manipulati- manipulative. Yeah, I'm not even going to try that. Yeah, manipul- yeah. <laughs> how manipulative you are. <laughs> yeah, so Machiavellianism, manipulating others for your own ends, um, and to go on a very slight tangent, people make the argument that all language is manipulation in a some sort of technical sense, but. This is, yeah, in the more colloquial sense of manipulation. Um, yeah, so that is one um, tenet of the Dark Triad. So the other are narcissism and psychopathy. So m- people will be more familiar with these. Narcissism just being like, I guess, like self-obsessed and self-interested. And um, I guess along along with that would come like lack of thought and lack of empathy for others. But that is probably more so the psychopathy part of it. Um, I think that's... Uh, pretty typically explained by lack of empathy for others um, and you know people use the example of um, people with psychopathy um, you know like beating animals or you know maybe laughing when animals get hurt um, just an overall lack of empathy for other sentient beings I think um, so those are the three characteristics narcissism Machiavellianism and psychopathy um, and so people they have come to the conclusions that um, people with, and again, like it's gonna, there's gonna be a scoring, and we'll go over as in a second. But people that score high in these dark triad traits um, are typically people that will be the ones committing crimes, um, you know, be involved in, be the perpetrators of domestic abuse and domestic violence, and um, going to jail and highly violent and. As you would imagine, someone who has low empathy, they only have self-interest in their mind and they're not afraid to manipulate others to do so. Um, because I guess you could you could see yourself scoring high on like two of them, but not that potential third one to really kick into action. Like if you've got a lot of empathy for other people, but you are self-interested and you are willing to manipulate, uh, well, maybe that those two don't, but... Um, if you do have a lot of empathy, then you maybe probably won't be willing to act on it. Um, so you can see how it, it, it is quite important to have all three in place. For the negative outcomes that they're related to. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. 
not Josh is not suggesting if you're <laughs> low on narcissism, you need to get those numbers yeah, up. Yeah, push those numbers up, baby. Those are rookie numbers. <laughs> um, so here's another interesting bit. Oh, okay. Maybe uh, we'll give these definitions as well. So narcissism is characterized by grandiosity, pride, egotism, and lack of empathy. Machiavellianism is manipulation and exploitation of others, absence of morality, um, unemotional callousness, high level of self-interest. Psychopathy is characterized by continuous antisocial behavior, Linden. (laughs) Impulsivity, not Linden. Um, Selfishness, callous and unemotional That's also like... You're you're taking antisocial way too literal there. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pe- people think of antisocial point. But like I I avoid social outings and activities, but antisocial is obviously like um, non-prosocial behavior. Yeah, it's like negatively acting towards like a sort of a social group like yeah. that. Like you're probably um, asocial. Yeah, that's that's maybe better. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yes. Those those are good definitions, and you can see there's a bit of overlap there. Um, but they are they're considered independent but related, I guess, for as as useful a distinction as that is. <laughs> yeah. So how did we score? Um, how do you want to go about it? Like, what's what did you score lowest on? Uh, psychopathy. What did you? No surprise what? there. Point six. No, no surprise. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, just like relating back to the other episode, my my empathy scores and like softness scores. Were but you s- you said empathy was related to narcissism. Narcissism. It, it, it was both, but um, particularly psychopathy. That's like the definitional quality of psychopathy is the lack of empathy. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you scored point six for that. Yeah, I scored one point two, so I was in the sixth percentile. What what were you in the first percentile? Yeah, so we're looking at like low mm. and yeah to add context scores are between zero and four um, when we're giving these first scores so 0. 0.6 out of out of four and you're 1.2 it's probably just four. easier for us to talk in terms of percentile yeah or is it though well at least someone then has a yeah we'll do that. a barometer out of 100 for that then yeah true okay what was your next uh, machiavellianism third percentile third third Jesus. <laughs> okay. You? <laughs> I got narcissism in the 17th percentile. Jesus. Oh, no. I did Machiavellianism. Sorry. Okay. So, right, just what's, what's your score? Your two scores so far. Okay. So, psychopathy, first percentile. Machiavellianism, third. <laughs> okay. So, your, your two, two lowest don't even equal my first lowest <laughs> put together so i got for psychopathy i'm in the sixth percentile mm. and narcissism in the 17th percentile yeah yeah so narcissism i was in the third percentile again that that narcissism one though there's definitely maybe you're just more honest than i am <laughs> well, well we'll discuss afterwards what was your final score your highest score uh what narcissism this is going terribly. Yeah. So I was asking from the bottom, like what was your lowest percentile score? Then we've done your yeah. second lowest. Now what is your highest oh, well, score? They were both three. They were oh, both okay. three, yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
Okay, so my highest scoring was Machiavellianism, mm. and I scored in the 62nd percentile. Ooh, I feel a bit unsafe right now. Maybe so we won't get you that puppy for Christmas. <laughs> I, um, well, I think psych- no, psychopathy would have been um, the biggest threat for the puppy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Machiavellianism, as we've sort of discussed, is the tendency to be manipulative and deceitful. Do you think that's accurate, by the way, that uh, score of yours? Um, well, I think it's, oh, yeah, like it's it's obviously useful to the extent that I answered the questions. Yeah. Um, so examples of questions like that would be, or that came up related to Machiavellianism were, um, you think it's, uh, you think it's important to keep secrets to yourself. Yeah. Or yeah. like, or the inverse of that would be like, you think it's important to, um, like tell people your secrets and for the most part like i prefer to be quite a private person Mm. um that obviously boosts my machiavellianism score yeah um but yeah for the most part it's like i don't like people knowing about my private life that's Mm. just not like to your point sort of going back to um just because you're looking into something doesn't mean you're accepting of it and it's mm. the same kind of i think thing here for me it's like just because i prefer to keep my private life private yeah. doesn't mean i'm doing things in it that i shouldn't be yeah it's like i just like boundaries and i think mm. that's more related to my personality than than anything mm. yeah so no cause for concern basically um but i guess that's what a psycho sociopath would say so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah well i i do think um uh, Again, like there, there often is a lot of, often there are two ways to take these prompts and, um, you know, if you take them just on face value and, um, or if you take them on face value, you're likely going to answer them in the context that you put it in because they can be, again, quite ambiguous like that one, you know, I like to keep secrets to myself. That could be seen in one way and that can be seen in another way, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say there's cause for concern for you. Um, but yeah, I, with mine, yeah, again, probably no surprises there. Um, I would say, yeah, I'm probably like an extremely empathetic person and, um, very non-confrontational and, uh, um, what was the other one? Yeah. The narcissism, I, I, I would have thought I would have scored higher in that, um, because I would see that that being one of my higher, higher scoring traits, for better or for worse, um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just stems from a different place. Um, yeah, it is interesting because I guess going back to the test that we did for our personality episode, you scored quite highly for um, status seeking, mm. which mm. you would think is semi-related to narcissism but yeah there's there's so many so many caveats obviously and just subtle distinctions that are important here Mm. um for example again i would think that my preference for strategic thinking Mm. probably um nudged the the narcissism score up a bit as well okay i was i was i thought you were going down the machiavellianism trait uh sorry that that was what i meant the the machiavellianism um yeah just sort of like of these questions, there was like, was like, I think I get what you're getting at, but I'm not going to 
mm. oppose that just because I know what you're... It's like it's yeah. obviously a negatively biased test, but I still mm. tried to answer as accurately as possible. Mm. Um, but yeah, so... Yeah, I, I guess that does actually get to a good point where I am... Um, yeah, I, I think that is pretty accurate, that reading though. So... On the Machiavellianism, it's, you know, you are willing to be manipulative. Mm. I think this this is kind of like a core moral dilemma for me in the mm. sense that if you can manipulate people for good, should that be done? Good question. Like, because the promotion of... Mm. Um, effective altruism like a number mm. of times it's like I consider that I'm genuinely trying to mm. um, influence people manipulate is the the negative connotation of that word mm. or you know I, f- I see all these words basically being on the sort of the same semantic spectrum of just like influence encourage manipulate they have various connotations obviously but yeah. I think they all are much closer to the same idea than what we realize or give them credit for. But perhaps like a a useful distinction is the manipulation has nothing to do with their interests. It's all about self-interest. I don't don't know if that is a definition that plays out on, uh, you know, the Oxford dictionary, but at least in my head, that is probably what I would say. When I'm using manipulation, I would say that that is all about self-interest. You're manipulating someone else for your own ends. But a word like influence or a word like, you know, even advocate um, or encourage or nudge to add that in. We'll speak about that as well. Perhaps that, well, yeah. So nudging, like I think that is all about um, nudging people for their own interests. And that's, um, shout out to... Sunstein and Dick Taylor, um, their book Nudge, um, I think that did win them a Nobel Prize. Um, but yeah, that, that seminal book Nudge was all about these societal nudges that take place for people's, for their own good. Anyway, sorry, tangent, but I was just thinking maybe that's the difference. In the no, I, I get what you're getting at. Um, I th- Like this is just a very common this is a very common position that I think I find myself in. I seem to be, say, what other people would probably consider tone deaf to mm. or like connotation deaf to these things. Yeah. But I think that I'm actually seeing it clearly, more clearly than others. And that yeah. could be the whole confirmation bias <laughs> thing. But like I was having this conversation with a friend um, literally two days ago mm. and she was talking about the word like, use she's like oh no like Mm. i don't like i i don't use it in that sense like use to me is you know you're say getting something out of someone that you couldn't get otherwise Mm. but i was like but that i was like you use people for companionship for Mm. you know enjoyment for entertainment Mm. to like cure boredom like Mm. like oh no but like that's not how i'm that's not how i was referring to it and i was like i I get you're trying to preserve some kind of um, semantic space Mm. for use in comparison to other words. But Mm. I was like, I think 
we just over-dramatize what the word use means. It's like a husband uses a wife to me and... Um, you know, <laughs> your ideal world, at least. <laughs> no, so no. she was she giving it the rose colored glasses, and you were giving it like the utility functionality glasses, yes, very much so. Mm. Like, she was kind of like, use is if someone uses someone, that's a bad thing, right? And I was sort of saying, like, everyone uses, yeah, everyone, um, and that's, yeah, yeah, use is just what well, I could probably almost pull it up what I sort of actually said, but. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's that important. I've probably kind of conveyed no, my I, point. I find that, but I just I want to add. I've had very, very similar conversations about the word argument, because again, coming from these more like analytical styles of thinking and thinking in syllogisms, like argument is just presenting your evidence, coming to some conclusion, um, presenting it to an opposing side. Um, whereas, like, I guess colloquially, people think argument is fight. They make that conflation. Um, whereas, you know, I, cause like I'm all for argumentation. I think it's a great thing, but I'm not confrontational. I don't like fighting or yelling to me. An argument is just like a thoughtful disagreement or even a thoughtful agreement. Like it doesn't have to be disagreement to be an argument. Yeah. You should keep talking because I'm trying to find this, <laughs> this thing. But yeah, I, I would say I'm very much on board with that, <laughs> with that use of use. <laughs> well, okay. So, well, like that's. That kind of neutral perspective on the word use hmm. is how I think of, say, manipulation in the same kind of, right. like, I think all these words have negative um, valence and say, I've, I've certainly um, shot myself in the sort of the social points foot a number of times when conversations will come up. Um, and, um, you'll be having some conversation and I'll be like, oh no, like I certainly, um, yeah, I put my interests first or something like that and state something that I think is just like obvious for Mm -hmm. most people. And then people turn around and be like, oh, what are like, geez, you must be very like pretty narcissistic. And I was like, you, Mm. you do the same thing. Yeah. But conversations are trees. The implicit knowledge of your branches is what needs to be made explicit for that comment not to come across the wrong way. Completely. Um, I'm struggling to find where the conversation actually took place, so maybe we'll just move on from that. Um, did you want to talk about like domestic violence, kick mm. us off there, or where, where did you want to take it from here? Yeah. Um, yeah, so okay, pee break. Let me... Oh, you can fill some air for a bit. <laughs> the reason why this is relevant, the dark triad... Did you just pause it or... No. All right, maybe stop it now. And... Smooth. The reason why that's relevant... Yeah, so the reason why that's relevant... Um, that's going to not sound as smooth <laughs> as what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, but what I was thinking about when I was in the bathroom just then was, you know, we were talking about... Um, I guess like people perhaps like liking the not so polished view of it. And I think it's, I think we came to some conclusions already, but I think it's because there's the feeling of you're in the room with them rather than like separate from it, rather than it being presented to you. It's like you're part of it. Um, That is also why like audio quality is so imperative, I believe, um, where we can like sort of skimp on other presentational aspects of it. What Um, are you talking about? (laughs) 
I'm talking about the smoothness and then like oh it's like because you finished off yeah, where we said you were talking about like and that's relevant yeah but then you talking interrupt- about dark triad <laughs> i know but then you interrupted with like oh that's smooth but then i was like oh well just on that point anyway what i was thinking about and, and then i said what i was thinking about in the bathroom was that um but anyway we'll, we'll go back to dark triad yeah. we, we digress <laughs> So I did find the conversation. I'm just going to quickly because I know I, <laughs> I beat around the, the, the bush there. Yeah. yeah um, so this person said, I personally, I only find myself quote unquote using people when I want or need something from them that I can't give back. And it was like, that was considered a bad thing in her eyes. Right. Um, so it's like if she was, if she felt like she was using someone, then that's, yeah, that's a bad thing. And I said, you know, then we definitely use the word differently. Um, you're saying it in a much more sinister sense. I'm saying it um, more abstractly. Um, surprise, she surprise. said, yeah, surprise, surprise, obviously. Um, she <laughs> said, like, you know, how do you use it? And I said, I think we use things that have positive expected value. I, like, that's basically mm. all I'm getting at. That's fair. Like, you know, um, I, you know, you use food, you, mm. you use your job. You like just, mm. you do it because you think it's going to have better, a better than not outcome for you. Yeah. Is, is use just like a literal shorthand for utilize or is it a different word altogether? I think, yeah. It Well then I think if you just use it in its full, um, use the full term, utilize it just completely cleaves all that negative connotation. Yep. Okay. Agreed. We can move on then. <laughs> but I'm interested. Did that come out of the previous episode? When? No. No. That conversation. Just. No. Just a conversation that came up. If you if you talk mm. to me long enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yes. So the reason why this dark triad is um, important. Um. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier in the episode, but David Buss, who just recently. Uh, published a book called When Men Behave Badly. And uh, David Buss is, uh, I guess, like one of the pioneers in evolutionary psychology. So, um, the I guess, like the field that uh, credits evolutionary theory to like psychological traits and behaviors. So, um, you know, when there's like sexual mating strategies, like an evolutionary psychologist would look at evolution and then um, use that as some sort of descriptive power for a present-day behavior. Or like a a way easier example is like overweight people. Um, You know, we evolved to be... uh, We evolved in scarce food situations and now there's an abundance of food, but uh, we're, we're using, I guess, like antiquated software in this updated world. So there's a mismatch and then where there's that mismatch, there's some sort of manifestation which probably um, doesn't align with like our ideals because that's another thing, like our our ideals are also shifting but perhaps like our software is like years and years behind and then the landscape is also changing. So there's like these three different things to consider all at once. Um, where was that going? So, I might just add in something, add something. there. Um, evolutionary psychology cops a bit of a bad rap. Um, it's not a very popular with the press kind of field. 
um, mm-hmm. because a lot of the ideas do seem, um, they seem not confronting, but just like Josh spoke about earlier, like yeah. a dismissal of something or, you know, like because you've explained something, then you're like, say, you know, to use a very um, uh, like controversial kind of like a serious issue like rape. Mm. Um, evolutionary psychologists will typically speak about like there are explanations for these things occurring. There are um, behaviors like mental behaviors and like socio- sociological forces, all kinds of things. But they'll they'll talk about how that maps onto an evolutionary perspective. Mm. Um, and the thing, and that's why it's typically not received very well. Um, is what I'm getting at. But the thing that I would just like to point out is the reason I think evolutionary psychology is important is because we tend to treat the mind as, well, one, as uh, like disconnected from matter. Like Mm. there's the sort of the spiritual or dualism sense that the mind isn't related to the body. And I think stemming from that is the idea that the mind is disconnected from evolution Hmm. okay it's like it hasn't undergone evolutionary forces and we can um you know teach it to think in any way that we want to or can make it capable of of anything given um you know the right resources or environment Hmm. um or the negative connotation of or sorry the, the flip side of that the inverse connotation is that if someone is doing antisocial or otherwise negative things then it's because they haven't been taught to behave correctly and not because there's some kind of underlying human nature there blank slate um and the thing that i kind of just want to get at is we haven't escaped evolution in a physical sense and everything basically points to the brain being also a product of evolution Mm. And it's like just in the very same way that you can't have a child and then tell it to have, you know, an elbow that's a ball and socket joint as opposed mm. to a hinge joint. Yeah. The same kind of implications are true of the mind. Mm. Like a child that you bear is going to have the the imprint of evolutionary forces on it. It's going to be um, predisposed to various things and um predisposed i guess against other traits um Mm. and obviously social forces genetic factors and you know upbringing all kinds of things determine exactly how these traits come to fruition but there is still a blueprint of our evolutionary history Mm. on the mind yeah um even even if it isn't completely understood um, but it but it does blow my mind that people still are blank slaters today. That and there is the joke is like uh, anyone who's a blank slater has never had more than one kid. Yeah, yeah. But it, is it fair to say though, perhaps that um, it's a, the mind is probably like a little bit more malleable than like some of these other traits we speak about, and that's the issue. Yeah. So like, it's it's not that. I guess the blank slate. I don't think anyone is a a blank slater in the sense that they're or like a complete blank slater. 
Oh, definitely met some recently. Okay. Well, <laughs> you need to spend time with people from Melbourne Uni. Yeah, maybe <laughs> that's social true. Departments. Um, okay, so a point that I think I've spoken about on the podcast previously and just had discussions elsewhere is I think p- t- people typically advocate for a perspective that they think is undervalued. They mm. might not say that is the whole truth and the, the complete truth, but it's just yeah. like people will be speaking up and proposing for, say, blank slate theory, thinking that we're just... We need to yeah. Bayesian update in that direction, yeah, not right. that it is the, the whole truth. Yeah, yeah, the doctrine ideology. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, to your point, the mind, yes, I think like it is, it's the most complex thing in the known universe. Mm. Okay, like that's, that's not um, exaggeration. That, that, that is definitely, I think, true at this point. And because it's complex, it has like a vast number of factors that go into it. And that, in some sense, gives you more dials and knobs mm. to twist. Mm. Okay, so, so it is more malleable than the body. And just what we know about nerve cells as well, like the, mm. the physical substrate that the mind is made out of in comparison to other things, like nerve mm. cells are very plastic. Yeah. So we have... Um, a vast number of factors which hints at more changeability than not. And yeah. then, um, yeah, the physical substrate, which also hints at a large degree of plasticity. Mm. But with that said, those two things come into tension in that, okay, cool, the mind is changeable, but we know very little about like mm. how to direct it when we try to change it. It's like we we can you can probably change the mind, but it's mm. not always going to change in the ways that you think it will or should based on the stimuli given to it. Yeah, sort of just speaking to like the the different individual starting points. So I think we did speak about it on it last week, but um, what one th- once one uh, stimulation for one person would have like an opposite effect um, potentially given whatever their starting point may be um but yeah so that was yeah a bit about evolutionary psychology whom david buss is one of the pioneers of um and yeah in his recent book which i've not yet read but i'll be excited to read but he's spoken a lot about it um in some recent talks he talks a lot about um the dark triad being uh probably like one of the the central common threads in people that are perpetrators of domestic violence. And uh, I think an important point to highlight, like one thing that really like blew my mind when I was reading um, Jess Hill's book, to mention that again, uh, was just the statistic of that gets to the point that women are actually like more in danger in their own homes than they are. So like the statistic, and I'm I'm not going to bother trying to cite it because I won't get the numbers right, but... It's significantly larger amount of women are abused um, sexually and physically by a domestic partner or ex-partner than a stranger. And now you can like get into reasons why this might be the case, um, where where you probably can't just reduce it to say that like women are more safe on the street at night than they are in their own homes, um, because because there has been that aversion. And, you know, they are spending a lot of time at home 
so that there could be reasons um, for that being the case. But it, it is a scary thought that like uh, that that women are more more in danger in their own homes than they are like walking the streets at night potentially. Um, but yeah, so David Buss speaks to a lot speaks a lot to the dark triad being um one of the one of the central forces in like domestic domestic abuse and domestic violence and uh another point he brought up that related to what you said um just about like use and utility so he used the term uh like asymmetric mating value and like you'll understand that from you know self-explanatory name but perhaps for others. So it's just getting to the point that, um, you know, in the market of mating or sex, sexual preferences and partner choosing, um, in that, say, market, we each have a value. If we were to put that out of 10, um, you know, some people are going to be 10. That's going to be the highest status males and, say, like more relatively young looking females with you know bigger breasts and big hips um so they those are going to be the tens the lower status males will be the ones and um you know the unattractive older women will be ones and again like these use of using very like evolutionary psychology terminology here um so that's like the that's the context for the mating value and then asymmetry is just speaking to like say in a relationship or two people having different values essentially which is very often the case um you know in breakups and this is like what david speaks about um which is that's why a lot of breakups will occur one of the reasons is because of this asymmetric value and it's usually the quite intuitively the person of higher value breaking up with the person of lower value yeah, so I have a few possibly interesting tidbits to add. Um, and I, I don't want this to come across as taking the sting out of what you said. And, and that's a it's a massive social issue, um, domestic violence for women. But I just want to speak to the point that um, it is interesting, like men and women experience different forms of abuse and violence. Yeah, okay, So men are more likely to be abused by a stranger out in public whereas women are more likely to be abused by um someone who's a non-stranger at mm. home yeah. okay and really there, there's no positive reading of that it's yeah, not exactly. excusing one or the other it's that violence and abuse is bad mm. and men and women experience different forms of it yeah which just going back to points i was trying to make last time is like mm. that we are we are detrimented by trying to treat men and women as the same. They have different issues and each need a specific um, solution in order to address the problem most appropriately. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of thought I would mention that. But it, it is a serious issue. And again, I don't want to take the sting out of the words that Josh said. The other thing I would say is just on the asymmetric mating value is our mating value changes over time, which mm. is also a factor that makes relationships difficult. Yeah, um, so it's, true. you can have two people who are appropriately paired at one point in the relationship mm. and then given say changes in status, physical appearance yeah. um, and things like that, there will be shifts. Mm. Now, hopefully you can build a relationship 
you know, if you want to with this person that mm. um, can sort of encapsulate and, and bridge that divide over time. Mm. Um, but yeah, so again, evolutionary psychology we think is very important, but it's only a single lens onto mm. these issues. You didn't touch on like the differences in type of violence either. That's an important No, that's, point. yes, that's true. Do you want to do it? Oh, I could do it. Um, yeah, so again, like males and females tend to be different in a lot of ways. Um, uh, one of the differences that we are speaking about is um, just the, the types of violence utilised by men and women. Sorry, we're shifting around a lot. Um, the types of violence utilised by men and women. Um, so maybe perhaps obvious, like men utilize physical violence and uh, women utilize, I guess you could call it like relational or emotional violence. Uh, and I think, you know, it only takes two eyes and some experience to uh, resonate with that, that, you know, you're going through school, you see uh, women or girl bullies are the ones uh, making rumors up about other girls. Um, male bullies are the ones, um, you know, pushing people over and punching people. Um, there is the social, cons- social constructivist view of that, um, but you know, I, I, which I, I do think plays into it a little bit. But um, I think there is some prob- probably a little bit of capital T truth that, to that point. Um, so yes, that that is how they're different. Um, the the dark triad, highly, from what we can tell, indicative of. Um, being uh, closer to um, a per- being closer to being a perpetrator of domestic violence, um, and uh, yeah, it's probably important to I think just maybe like recognize some of those behaviors and see I guess like see what you can do about tempering it and uh, like tempering it in others because I guess that's another thing they speak about is like just how non-visible the issue is a lot of the time by the very nature of it. Um, yeah, you, you're often not, for, for a number of reasons, like women often aren't out there speaking of these issues and there's a lot of like structural issues in place um, that prevent women from coming forward and there's a lot of like lack of resources that prevent women from getting help. Um, and again, like not to make this one-sided, like, there are men getting abused both physically and emotionally, um, but just the predominance is women. Like the overwhelming predominance is women. Um, and you also need to consider like the fact that, um, you know, that there is the numbers that are reported, but then there are the numbers that aren't reported. So it's, it's probably a lot larger of a number than, than we currently think, um, or at least is out there. Um, yeah, that was a lot. Yeah. No, there's like, there's not tons that I really want to follow up with on that it's just um i think it's just it may be important to say that maybe i'm just going to beat a dead horse at this point but like yes men and women are different and we see say like at home women typically getting hurt and out in public men typically getting hurt you know in violent ways but the the point kind of is is like the common factor is that there's like men in both situations it's just yeah. like at home it's a man and a woman yeah. and out it's typically like 
men and women, but men will only act violently towards the men. Yeah. And I sort of had a, a more concrete point that I wanted to make, but it, like the point that I'm kind of getting at is like men are violent hmm. and however you arrange the social circumstances, like hmm. men are typically going to be violent hmm. or like more predisposed towards violence. I'm not excusing hmm. the violence. I'm just saying like there are, the phenomena that we see is basically like those, those interesting factoids about like, mm. yeah, women getting hurt at home mm. and men being hurt out in public is basically just explained by men being violent and yeah. way more violent than women. Yeah. It's like the, the most violent person picked up randomly is going to be a man every single time. Um, like, yeah, we talk about the statistics view on things, um, you know, when you look at like the average or the mean violent person, um, you know, you see a lot of overlap. There's, of course, going to be violent women, physically violent women and um, physically violent men in that sort of middle area. But when you go to the extremes, every single time, that's going to be um, a man. Um, so, so are you sort of getting at and do you think that um, or like what's your perspective on um, violence being inherent in humanity and inherent in humans and um and but i guess more importantly like what are our like what are the chances and what are our options for like trans transcending that or is that a rose-colored glasses view of things yeah so the kind of idea you're hinting at here is well i'll, I'll try and start from the start um they're in sort of the social sciences it was very popular in the the sort of 70s and 80s to promote the idea of one, the blank slate, like um, we sort of spoke about earlier, that um, humans are basically born as blank pieces of paper that can be, have anything written on them. You can take a kid who was born to one set of parents, just like the second he is born, take it to another set of parents on the other side of the world and he's going to grow up Um like his adoptive parents mm. raised him or her to be. Um, however, that has become increasingly uh, like disproved the more we know about um, genetics and a lot of this is predominantly based on twin studies. Now, that's mm. not a perfect science. Um, there's a lot of issues there as well. And it's not to say that social forces don't... Um, yeah, don't have their importance. So there's the blank slate and a sort of a, an accompanying um, sort of idea that was typically very closely related to the blank slate is that of the noble savage mm. in that humanity was predominantly this very nice, berry-picking, easygoing, relax-in-the-sun, mm. um, share your food and resources with the community mm. um, in the small band of con humans that you were, you know, well connected with and you'd sit around and then tell stories. Mm. Um, yeah, just the primary point being that the ancestral humans weren't considered to be violent and this was like very popular thought for a long, for a very long time um, and then it sort of really got... Um, Tons of, I think, uh, anthropological and 
similar kinds of evidence eventually came to light and that like ancestral humans were probably the most violent of all humans it's basically mm. it's the point i'm getting at is the default nature of humans is to be violent mm. it's kind of like thomas soul mm. um sort of phrases this in the financial sense of like we shouldn't be wondering you know why people are poor we should be mm. wondering like why they are rich it's like it's yeah. natural for people to be born poor to have nothing to not have resources mm. we we spend so much time looking into the poor and going hey what's wrong over yeah. here but his opinion is we should be looking at the financially successful and going what the hell are they doing over here that's so right that mm. we can then share around and spread and Similar kinds of things, I think, are true in the the violence sphere. It's mm. like it's yeah. when you look at someone who is being violent, it's not that there's something necessarily wrong with them, yeah. especially if they're a male. It's like that's they were ninety nine percent of their evolutionary history has been geared around mm. them being violent and being willing to, you know, stab, kill, massacre. Mm. Um, enemy tribes or anyone who basically tried to you know assert dominance over them mm. so the yeah the sort of the more current thinking is and again this is not to excuse violence this is not saying violence is an okay thing it's saying mm. by default we will tend to be naturally violent especially males and if we wish to engineer a non-violent society we need to look into ways of um mitigating that and inhibiting mm. violent tendencies yeah yeah and because obviously in in the process of successfully mitigating that you are understanding and accepting it as a reality like that is a you need that presupposes the mitigation of it um but yeah thomas Sowell, that is why he is such a genius in that sphere because it's just that inverse questioning or that just flipping of the presumptions that gets to such important points so like the one you were speaking about he says um, poverty demands no explanation affluence does or something to that effect and then similarly like violence demands no explanation order does um, because when you really kind of look at it the natural state is chaos and disorder and tribalism um, and i have like slightly alluded to this when speaking about like indigenous australians like that's such a common one that advocates of indigenous rights and like obviously i'm an advocate as well but i don't have um the misconception that things were all um sunshine and lollipops before the europeans got here um and before australia was colonized uh you know you need to think about like the counterfactual and what would be going on if it was never colonized that's obviously a hard um simulation to run in your head but the point being that there was quite uh there's a high probability that there was a lot of inter-tribe and intra-tribe violence prior to australia being colonized um yeah i just wanted to add that in no i think that that is a good addition and um obviously that's something that we do over these episodes is we sort of we try and have a central point, but then we refer back to other things and show how that same lens applies to a different topic mm. or try and, try and 
try and find counterexamples. So mm. we do jump all over the place a bit, but that's the point is we don't want to just sort of sit here and go, oh, this is the topic episode. Here's yeah. how you're going to learn to think about this in this completely myopic manner. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just wanted to now quote um, a couple of quotes that Steven Pinker utilizes in uh, The Blank Slate, which is a phenomenal book. Um, his thinking is, say, slightly evolved um, from writing it. Um, but, like, this is one of those books that I recommend to pretty much anyone who I think will actually read it. Um, yeah, This and Behave by Robert Sapolsky mm. um, are just two awesome books. It's probably going to take you six months to read the both of them. Mm. Um but will give you such a grasp of the interaction between biological and social forces. Mm. Um, but So, the point we're trying to make here is, again, that there is some kind of human nature there that lies beneath the social force um, forces that we sort of tend to speak more about. It's not that it's... Like culture doesn't matter and men are always going to be violent mm. and humans are always going to be violent. It's just that there is something we need to recognize there. Mm. And this is because like, and I'm going to read this quote now, is like quotes like this are very common to hear in the media. So this is a quote from um, a couple of public health ex- experts. The reality is that children learn to value and use violence to solve their problems and deal with strong feelings. They learn it from role models in their families and communities. They learn it from the heroes we put in front of them on the television, the movies, and video games. And that seems, end quote, and that seems just like we all listen to that on the TV and the Today Show and Today Tonight or whatever, whatever it is, and we go, oh my God, yeah, it's these these violent video games that are making kids violent. Video games. And it's like there has been... A number of studies that have looked into this and it's just it's obviously so much more complex than those mm. oh we put superman on tv and he punches people yeah. therefore kids are going to punch people yeah and i think the brilliant thing that um steven pinker um points out in this book is just like superheroes and you know um because I remember this was a big thing when mixed martial arts was going to be on TV. Mm. When I remember, say, like 10 years ago before MMA reached mainstream mm. popularity, there was this conversation about should we allow MMA on TV or is it going to just incite mm. like riots and chaos of people mm. being violent? And this was that same point basically going on is like if you quote unquote normalize violence, mm. will people become more violent? And yes, it, it may nudge things one way or the mm. other. But the thing is, it's not that people are only watching MMA all day, every day. They'll watch, you know, half an hour of boxing or MMA or a violent action movie, but then they'll watch stand-up comedy. Mm. They'll watch clowns and cooks and Mm. they'll speak to their parents and they'll Mm. do, they'll read a book. They do a range of behaviors and things that, that influence them. Yeah. And the thing is, we don't worry about putting cooks on TV and go, oh, what about the economy? Now everyone's going to become a cook. Every kid's <laughs> yeah. going to grow up and want to become a cook. Yeah. Yeah, it's just extremely reductive to, I guess, like assume that that, that one factor will have um, such a, a widespread effect. Um, but uh, yeah, again, like you're, you're not, you're, we're obviously not saying that it doesn't have an effect. 
Um, I think this whole episode we've said obviously things that we're not saying <laughs> as opposed to saying things. Oh, caveats, huh? <laughs> um, because, okay, because what came to mind was like the pornography debate, um, whereas like there is quite a consensus that um, among, amongst experts in that field that um, pornography does have some sort of effect um, on even even like domestic abuse, but um, just like sexual behaviours. Um, so there is that other side to it where like that could be an instance where um, where it does play out. Um, yeah, and the thing is, is like it might it might be true that some of these um, these portrayals of violence do nudge like violent violence in general up. Hmm. It's there's a there's a lot of things that need to be disentangled here and that's kind of the same thing with like the gun issue in America mm. um so to your point about pornography it's like yes it's correct to be paying a lot of attention and saying hey is this going to benefit society should we be introducing this mm. but it's equally important as well to have that more holistic view of how yeah. a human is formed and what influences not only our culture, but yeah, the biology that emerges out of someone. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Did you have follow-up thoughts? I just wanted to add in um, the the point of finite resources. Um, like again, like coming back to economics, it is such a useful lens to look at the world, um, and it can add so much wisdom and inform inform our thinking in a lot of positive ways um, because once once you understand that again like economics not being about money it's about being it's about there being resources finite resources and the the allocation of finite resources um, and once you look at land and um, you know other land and food and animals as resources and then you look at um, different countries and different tribes and groups um, you realize that's just like an economic question of, you know, there's finite resources and there's competition. Um, and, you know, we've spoken about competition and there being bad actors and cheaters. Um, so it, it almost does look like it will be inevitable um, in some sense that there'll be some violence when there's finite resources um, and there's competition and there's opposing tribes. Like there's all the... There's all the nourishing ground for there to be warfare and violence. Um, and then, and this is, I think, largely Stephen Pinker's thesis for the better angel, the better angels of our nature, which was his massive book on um, the progress away from violence, is that um, there's civilization which brings about um, the, these long periods of peace that we've been experiencing. Um, so things like education and writing and spreading of ideas and, and trade as well, like these enlightenment values have largely helped um, overcome these kind of innate violent tendencies that are in our, I guess, like evolved um, monkey minds and bodies. Yeah, so there's definitely the better angels of our nature or just more generally speaking, um, his book on what well, called Enlightenment Now, mm. which sort of builds off that and shows so the blank slate i guess to start there is considered a more um pessimistic view of humans and and mm. people could go away from that and going oh 
you know, we're, we're always going to be horrible and, and that's what this book is getting at. But that's not what Pinker's getting at. Pinker is saying, hey, this is kind of like, this is what we're working with. We should be aware of like our foundational features. Then, you know, he goes to the better angels of our nature and say, mm. here's how we've successfully mitigated and moved away from violence mm. successively over time through civilization. And it's not that we started as the noble savage and modern society makes us this mm. horrible things because we're watching violent TV shows mm. where we've actually become plenty less violent. Yeah. And then... Um, enlightenment now looks at a variety of domains not just violence Mm. and shows here's how humans have um, moved away from ignorance and towards you know um, Mm. intellectual enlightenment or education and as you said we've moved away from disease and towards longevity and Mm. health and yeah all these variety of domains where humans have progressed Mm. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I, j- I just thought that's important to add in. Yeah. Um, thoughts? Quotes? Quotes? Yeah, so I've got some more quotes. Um, this is another one that sort of uh, gets back to our masculinity episode slash things we've talked about here because they're sort of both linked. Um, quote, Violent behaviour, emotional distance and higher rates of drug addiction can't be explained by hormones. The problem, experts say is cultural beliefs about masculinity. Everything is packed into the phrase, a real man. Mm. And that's sort of, I didn't explain very well, but that that's Quinker, uh, Pinker sort of like quoting um, someone else mm. when they were talking about violent behavior, emotional distance and high rates of drug addiction can't be explained by hormones. Mm. And yeah, it's that, that whole idea that um, if men are behaving badly it's because of toxic masculinity Mm. and these cultural forces that tell men it's okay to to punch or to Mm. abuse women Um, and pinker's kind of point is yeah we should probably be looking at social factors if that can help us mitigate these things but don't be surprised if men are punching other men in the face yeah because that's just what men do yeah. He's not saying that's a real man or how a man should be, not being prescriptive, saying mm-hmm. this is the vast majority of men's default mm-hmm. settings coming to play. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I think that's largely true. And again, I, going back to the spectrum, I think that is largely true for the people on the more inclined to violence spe- part of the spectrum. Because, um, yeah, when I think about it, like will we ever be able to get to a society of zero violence? Um, you know, I think no, but I think there is a lot of progress to me to be made from where we currently are. Um, and I know you would agree with that as well. Um, but the reason why I don't think it's possible to completely um, transcend these violent tendencies and outcomes in society is because of the people on the far, far end of the spectrum. The people, again, like we work in mental illness, like the people that they just get dealt a bad hand. Um, they lose the lottery, so to speak, and uh, they come out with um, psychopathy and you know these Machiavellian traits from from birth. Um, or you know maybe even not that. Maybe they come out um, pretty decent from birth, but you know they just uh, deal with such tough life circumstances that it sort of forces them into those places. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're you're probably touching on a point here that's that's one of my 
um, less well-received points that I they tend to that comes up in conversations on this topic is um, we might be talking about things like uh, there's say those ads on TV um, maybe they're still on TV I'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> um, those ads about sort of like call it out yeah. um, like when men sort of there's like the guy staring at the yeah. the woman on the train I think and it's just like call it out um, no means no and mm-hmm. there's these sort of um, these messages that are considered to be like stoppers against toxic masculinity. Yeah. And I'm not saying they're bad. I think, I think overall, like they're probably a good thing. The point that I'm trying to say to people when I have these conversations is that the person most likely to offend mm. is the person who is like inoculated against those messages. Mm. It is the person who suffers and I think suffers is the correct word from the dark triad variables all being dialed Mm. up. They're not influenced by the no means no, because those, those ads like pull in our emotional strings. Mm. That's, that's how they work and how they're, you know, they quote unquote manipulate us to think that is the right idea. They go, they make us, become invested in the story Mm. of the character who is being, um, who is experiencing some kind of toxic masculinity. Mm. And you think, oh, actually that would be horrible if I, you know, felt what that person was feeling. Mm. It is important that I call it out when I see it. Yeah. And that's how it kind of works. Mm. But the person who is um, unfortunately, um, like who, as I said, gets that really bad hand and, ultimately ends up being the person that, um, you know, say rapes someone walking home from the train late mm. at night or like the, these horrible things that you see in the news, that person who suffers from low empathy and high amounts of psychopathy, like is not absorbing the same message from those ads that other people are because mm. of where they fall on, say, the bell curve. Mm. And I'm just speaking to your point that like yeah. those single those very few people that fall on that end of the curve and are most likely to offend are also least likely to be helped Mm. by those kinds of messages yeah, or protected Mm. um, or like mitigated by those Mm. kinds of messages. Mm. So my point is, sorry, I'm getting, Mm. uh, maybe I've already made it, is that maybe they don't help to the extent that we think they're helping. Mm. They feel really good to the vast majority of society and we think, oh, this is helping, this is improving um, gender roles and interactions between men and women and call it out and Mm. maybe we do, but I'm... And maybe that improves how um, a man speaks to a woman at the pub one time. Maybe that kind of thing, behaviour, is changed. Mm. But I'm not sure the most dramatic kinds of behaviour, like the homicide, the Mm. rape, the... Yeah. I'm not sure it protects against that. Or maybe it isn't aiming to. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. A, a few things came up there. No, I'm not sure either, obviously. Um, but there's a couple of things in tension here. Like one of the things that Jess Hill talked about in her book a lot was, and I, I know I spoke a lot about a prototype of the dark triad being indicative of the person that's going to be committing this domestic abuse. One of the things that she spoke about in her book was um, pretty much the opposite point, that there was no like prototype. It, there was, it was the fact that it really could be any of us doing it. Like um, the variance in abusers is that kind of... It's, yeah. yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. a prototype. 
yeah, the variance in uh, the personality traits and the life circumstances. You know, she talks about it being the high status males with all the resources and entitlement, abusing people, um, their partners, and then also, you know, the depressed drug addict with anger issues who can't hold down a job, also being a perpetrator. Um, so that was one thing that was really great about her book um, where she highlighted she didn't put it on any one specific demographic. Um, it really just sort of opened my eyes to like, oh, you know, it really could be any of us if we're not careful. Um, I don't know how far I take that belief, but it's an important thing to consider. Um, another thing was, yeah, so how useful those ads are Perhaps they're just speaking to like, because I agree with that point that like the people on the end of the spectrum really aren't swayed by like logic and rationality. And I mean, that's maybe just obvious for people that commit crimes aren't swayed by the disincentive of going to jail. Therefore, they're probably not the most rational um, or they're not, you know, acting based on rationality uh, because it's not rational. The, the reward to risk often isn't there. Um, but yeah, perhaps those ads are just speaking to people at the margin of like, um, you know, somewhere closer to the middle of the spectrum. If there was all the fertile ground in the world for them to be a perpetrator, they that, that would tip them over the edge, um, you know, and, and it might not be, and this is what you were saying, like it might not be the person like killing and raping, but it might be the... Uh, the person like, you know, just knocking around their partner a little bit um, that it could speak to. Um, but yeah, just those people um, on the margin that I think it might be effective for. The last thing I was going to add was just, uh, uh, I don't know, just creating like a, a, a cultural environment where these things are really like explicitly spoken about and... Um, explicitly demonized uh is probably not a bad idea even if it's not even if it's not like extremely effective um you know maybe maybe it's not a bad idea anyways um i don't i don't, I don't know about that um but and yeah another thing that was in her book was just about ideas around gender norms and how that affects violence and that, and that there does seem to be some relationship between like how strongly you believe in, um, you know, antiquated gender norms and then say like your, um, the likelihood that you'll be a perpetrator of domestic violence. So there does seem to be some positive relationship there. Yeah. All really good points. Um, I, the point I was probably trying to make with those kind of ads is my frustration typically comes from the kind of like dusting of the hands and it's like, Oh, well, we'll like we've done what we need to like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think this kind of, it's, I'm not saying those ads are going to be detrimental, possibly mm. they're neutral, most likely they're helpful, mm. but they're also, I think very likely to be helpful in a rather minuscule way. Yeah. And it's kind of like, that's one step along the journey, mm. but we also need to think, really really hard and seriously about how we um evolve through and past these problems mm -hmm. um 
And one of the things that just came to mind was that kind of, and it's not surprising, like things that get spread around a lot are typically just like catchy and not necessarily indicative of any kind of truth. But um, well, there, like I guess there is say some truth to it, I'm not dismissing all of it, but that phrase that was being shared, like, or it gets reshared a lot anytime there's a highly publicized um, form of, um, yeah, domestic abuse or like, uh, male, female, um, homicide or, or rape mm. or something like that. And the, I guess the two ones that stick out, um, to me is like, there was a lady that was raped, um, I think walking home from the 86 tram, um, a few years ago. St. Kilda one. St. Kilda one, was it? Well, the, so. And there was like, is it Jill, Jill Ma? Is that the, that the one familiar. who disappeared? Um, yeah. Anyway, like obviously there, there's a lot, um, the thing is, it's just like at certain points in time, it's the hot thing for the media to publicize and a lot of people buy into it. Um, and there was the phrase that gets circulated around when that kind of happens that um, it's basically like stop telling women to not go out at night or go out late at night or like mm. stop telling women how to behave and start telling men not to like rape and kill because there was a lot of like whenever something like this happens, there's comments about like, oh, well, why was she alone? Like, why mm. was she, not that she was asking for it, but just like, yeah. why was there not protective factors mm. in place? And then there's the, um, like, and they're kind of crass comments to some extent, but also like, it's just coming, I think, from that basis of like concern for welfare. Yeah. Like because of the knowledge that men can do predominantly men like mm. can do these vastly horrible things. Um, and then the comments are then will like stop telling women how to behave in this like men dominated world and start teaching and telling men not mm. to do those things. And my kind of point was those kind of men can't necessarily be told those mm. ads don't tell them right. how like the messages from culture don't tell them yeah. because of their personality traits because of how they are they are almost like by definition weirdos and loners and outsiders of society and they stop yeah. taking in cultural messages yeah they haven't been tempered like the rest of us because we are receptive in ways that they aren't mm. and that's that's the issue that's the thing that we need to work out how to deal with mm. um yeah her name was jill ma um good one on that but yeah, I I largely agree. Like it's the the uncharitable way of looking at it. Those comments is victim blaming is a term that gets thrown around, um, and which I certainly wasn't trying to do. Yeah, but they're no, just no, no. saying yeah. there's a tension here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Like, because I'm in agreement with you that like you need to. <laughs> Bill Burr <laughs> has a pretty funny bit about it about this exact point. It's like, you know, people will say that, like, there's never a reason to hit a woman. And he's like, never? <laughs> really? <laughs> like, and, it, and he makes a point. He's like, he's not saying it's the right thing to do. He's not saying that he would do it in that case. But is there really never a reason? Like, just taking it literally. Um, it's like, woman's about to stab you and rob you with everything you've got on you. Exactly. Can you punch her in the face? Yeah, it's probably okay to do that. Yeah, exactly You're holding a right. gun to your child's head. Yes, you can punch her in the face. Yeah, exactly right. Like, uh 
it's it's just a matter of looking at the issue incomplete. Like, and it comes back to the left right thing, uh, politics. Like, we often speak out about, and it's a lot of people speak out about the ills on the left because the issues on the right are so obvious. Whereas the issues on the left side of the political aisle are a little bit more insidious. They're a little bit more um, coaxed. Is that the right word? Coaxed? Coated? Oh, yeah, I sort of get what you're getting at. But, like, the the thing is, is, like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like, that's kind of the yeah. point. And just, like, all of these things are obviously well-intended mm. things. All, like, all these comments are well-intended, mm. but they can still end up horribly. Like, mm. if we are completely ignorant of human nature and mm. who social forces will and won't influence yeah yeah i was just getting at the point that like um you know you need to look at both of the issues like it's it's obviously an issue that men are doing that but we also need to look at what are the other potential contributing forces of that and it's not about blaming the victim but i think just saying that okay given this is the given this is the landscape that being that men are known to be violent there are you know men dealing with a addiction and um, mental illness Um, and again it's not excusing them but that is the reality that we are living in so given that reality exists how can women best operate in that world even if it's unfortunate that they have to where it's like the alternative if you just avoid that reality um, it's probably there's probably a high likelihood that that will be um, completely worse or antithetical to what the goal is um, that things like rape and domestic abuse will increase, not decrease. Um, so yeah, I do. I do think it's important to um, just look at look at both sides of it like that. Um, but yeah, we should maybe any um, closing thoughts. No, I don't actually have any closing thoughts. Um, do you? Um, no, just that. I don't know. Yeah, I. I mean, I don't think we probably need to keep saying it, but I, I hope we're not coming across as... Um, <laughs> that, that was going to be my only closing thought as well. I was like, please, please don't uh, stop listening and being like, these guys are fucking closed-minded jerks. <laughs> and trying to present both sides of an argument somewhat yeah. without stereotyping either one, but then just sh- saying like where we think like the truth on the matter falls and potentially like Mm. the direction in which we should be updating. Yeah. It's just, it's just unfortunately always going to be like a, or the truth oftentimes will be unpopular and, um, not very palatable. Um, so, but I think it's important to highlight those truths. Um, if we have a certain inclination to do so, um, and just, that like we're going to have the same end goals as people that might disagree with our conclusions or our path to get there so like i guess just recognizing that that we ultimately do want the same thing as you know potentially anyone that would disagree with us but we might just have different ways about getting there but yeah yeah good stuff thanks for joining me again today joshua thank you